Hello and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 60 with guest Ante Karolainen, co-founder and CEO of Robocorp. Robocorp is a vendor in the RPA, or Robotic Process Automation Software Market. It's a type of software that allows businesses to automate repetitive and routine tasks, typically done by humans, through the use of software bots or robots. These tasks can include things like data entry or customer service interactions. If you've ever gone to a website and a chat bot pops up, that might be powered by RPA. As you can imagine, this software market is growing rapidly as more businesses are looking to automate their processes and improve efficiency. Robocorp is a newer business than I thought at first, given how thoroughly they've established a leadership position in this very competitive market. Antti has a lot of great insights, so without further ado, let's cut to the interview. Antti, welcome to the Underdogs podcast. Thank you, Mike. So no founder interview is complete unless we hear the origin story. I take it as a young undergraduate student, you probably didn't predict your career in RPA. So how did you get into the industry and how did Robocorp get its activation energy? Yeah, I mean, that's a long path, obviously, when we talk about these kind of founding stories. It all started with me just by you know doing software engineering work after graduating. And I ran a small consulting company around software engineering. And with that, we used to do a lot of QA test automation with a project called Robot Framework. It's a Python-based keyword-driven test automation framework. So I got into that community while while using it. It's, it's based out of, well, the, the project came out of Nokia. So that's why the Finnish roots. So I got into the community, started, you know, doing things around uh, the open source project, you know, hosting events, uh, stuff like that. And and then I, I bumped into RPA, which is starting to emerge and, and take off around 2016 and 17. And I thought immediately that that has a lot of commonalities with the test automation. So in, in test automation, you obviously drive a system to validate it. And in RPA, you drive a system to perform a business process. And so I, I thought that maybe Robo Framework could become the, the leading open source community for RPA and started on that path eventually after my first company got acquired. So, you know, a few years later, um, I'm, I'm looking at the market and there's this big competition emerged, raised a bunch of money, started growing really rapidly. And RPA was, you know, the fastest growing segment in enterprise software for like three years in consecutive. So I, I thought that, you know, somebody needs to build an open source solution for that. And, and I didn't see any other person, you know, having the right connections to do it. So I decided to start on that path myself. And that sort of led, you know, in, into into Robocop. I, I felt that I, I had to do it in a, in a way. So what are the products that Robocorp sells? So we sell one product, uh, which is the control room. That's the proprietary component in, in the stack. So that's the orchestration platform, as we call it in RPA. That's how you deploy the bots, manage them, govern them, you know, manage user rights and so forth. So it's really a central piece in, in how RPA works and how the bots actually get to execute work. And, and then we have a bunch of other components in the stack, you know, namely the, the core open source stack, which allows you to build a bot and run it. And, and then obviously all the automation libraries that enable you to, to connect to various applications from browsers to mainframes to, to ERP systems. And then we have the developer tooling on, on top of that, which, you know, creates a good developer experience. So anything really outside of the, the core control room platform is, is open source with us. 
One way that Robocorp has been innovative, I think, is through the use of low-code. And why do you think that low-code is so critical in your market? In RPA, you deal with different sorts of developer personas. Some are very technical, come from a developer background. Others might come from a accounting background, for instance. So when RPA got popular, it was marketed as something that anyone can really use to to build these bots. But then as it got adopted into the enterprise, it sort of uh, went into more complex use cases, more mission critical use cases. And so it became a automation professional domain. Okay, so so we started out with the automation professional in mind and built this robot framework and Python-based tools for them and got initial success with them. But we soon realized that it's too different f- for the developer persona that we're targeting. So, so they expected to have a drag and drop interface I- in front of them. And so we, we started thinking, okay, how, how can we innovate and make, create something that, that, that's actually meaningfully different in, in that space? And so, so we, we build a low-code layer on on top of our open source stack, which allows you to create a low-code solution, but it generates code in the back end. So we call it code-native low-code. So you work on this drag-and-drop interface. You 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 build the automation from individual steps, which might be like opening browser, clicking elements, etc. And in the back end, it's it's converting that real time into code. And and back if you if you edit the code, you'll see it in the low-code as well. So. So that was just the the market expectation, uh, and we wanted to sort of not be an outlier there to perceive to to be perceived as more difficult than the competition. While in 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 real life, it really isn't. But but coming from a background where a RPA developer might not have actually written a line of code, presenting them with a you know, VS Code editor is just too jarring of an experience. But I, I think we balanced it the right way, where we can you know, still keep the both worlds next to each other, low code and, and then pro code as we as we call it here. And and it's it's been a it's been a pretty interesting journey to build something that hasn't been built before that way. Can you tell us a little bit about the community? You mentioned you started with a open source project in Python. Were you able to bootstrap that community into the Robocorp community? And how is it going building that community out? The robot framework community is pretty extensive. I think the project gets around 1.5 million downloads a month from Python Package Index. And and so it's used extensively in end-to-end testing in QA. And initially, what we took out of that was all the integrations that have been built over the years. So we get to leverage this massive base of all these libraries that integrate into various systems that robot framework was used to test started out building our own tooling and sometimes the test automation community doesn't really overlap with the RPA community. So we had to start building our own community as as well. Sometimes they do overlap as well. So so we have customers who are now consolidating their test automation engineering efforts with their RPA engineering efforts, for instance. We have customers who are coming into our products because they know robot framework already. And so they experience with the tech and have confidence in it. So to a degree, there's overlap in those communities. But I think, you know, it feels like we are building these two parallel communities that overlap in parts. So it's like a Venn diagram in a way. One of the areas I I feel Robocorp's done a really good job is by reducing the friction to onboard people into both your community and also into the commercial engagement with RoboCorp. 
And I wonder if low-code is maybe a a gateway for people who go into the pro-code area. But can you talk a little bit about how that journey works from getting newbies and getting them into be RPA professionals and customers? Yeah, for sure, low-code is a big enabler there. You're not staring like a blank screen, but you have all these capabilities listed as actions that you can start dragging on a canvas. So it's something that pretty much anyone can start doing and you don't have to have a in-depth tutorial or training to be able to do that. So it's a big enabler. And also, by the way, we see the test automation community now starting to leverage the the automation studio, the low-code tool as well. There's definitely excitement around low-code and for good reasons. I I mean, you can frame out some solution that you have in mind in in minutes rather than learning the syntax from scratch. And then when you want to refine the solution you can you can go into the code and start customizing it maybe building custom python integrations python keywords and so forth it's actually something that i prefer to use even with with my developer background if i start a new project i started with the low code tools frame it out get the structure right and then might go into vs code and, and finish it up but it's such a big step up in the ease of getting started you don't really need to install python bunch of libraries figure out your your dev environment all of that that just goes away that's just a big easy button you know both sides of the community that you know pro code people and and the, the low code enthusiasts like to use it So one last technology question. Cloud Native has been a really, I mean, for me at least, it's felt like a monumental shift in sort of how the customers deploy and operate. And I'm wondering if you've seen something similar in the RPA market where Cloud Native has impacted or opened new opportunities for delivery. Yeah, definitely. That's a big part of what we do. So the control room itself, the the orchestration platform, that's a cloud native SaaS solution. So so that's something that you can just few minutes click into it and, and get an account going. And so so that's a great way to deploy RPA across a number of organizations, a number of you know different companies. If you are a service provider, for instance, uh, building RPA solutions, you sort of have this single pane of glass that you can operate across. Now, with RPA, it's also a double-edged sword. So, so it, it sort of comes with its benefits and uh, and the negatives as well. So, RPA is typically something that you do with applications that might be inside corporate firewalls inside private cloud environments. So so the bots actually need to operate typically in on-prem environments. And still, we use a cloud-native solution to deploy them. And there's a lot of architecture and engineering questions that we have had to solve to make it as secure and robust as possible to make it happen and, and be seamless for even the largest enterprises to to be able to adopt it. Now, obviously, the benefit is that, you know, you get a single version deployment. You don't have to go through, you know, installing a lot of infrastructure to get it started. You don't have to update versions. You don't have to maintain databases and so forth. But I think, especially with RPA, since it's dealing with quite sensitive business processes, typically, it deals with sensitive data as well, user information, healthcare information, financial information. And so the, so the security questions around that information are, are significant and also compliance. So that's one key part of how we architected the cloud-native product from the beginning to be able to service on-premise use cases. So who are the customers of Robocorp today? We serve a number of different types of customers. 
First, starting with the enterprise, we have a number of, of large Fortune 500s and global 2000s in the customer base. Some of the public references are companies like Emerson Electric, Ally Financial in the US, and there's a lot of uh, enterprise customers that are still not publicly referenceable. But but then uh, additionally, we have a large base of implementation partners. They have different business models, so they might offer a managed service on top of Robocop where they build uh, business process automation and deploy that across customers. It might be healthcare specific automations. It might be insurance, really any vertical, you name it. And then there's the system integrator community who offer services on and around RPA. So we cover from you know, mid-market customer base in broad range of verticals and geographies and all the way to the highest enterprise tiers. It's interesting to hear you say that you had partners who were maybe developing business-specific vertical solutions and then marketing them. Is that a strategy for segmentation where you're trying to identify, um, I guess, markets that you can deliver business value into and partners who can deliver that? Really, it boils down to direct enterprise customers and we do get some mid-market customers that are good with us, but but then the partner strategy is really in the core of the company. The opportunity with RPA is so vast, so you can you can basically imagine any kind of company, and and they will have use cases for RPA. So it, it comes down to whether the customer has a team of their own around business process automation. They might be using API-based solutions or kinds of intelligent document processing in together together with RPA to build end-to-end solutions inside a corporation. Or then when we go into the mid-market and and below, it becomes a use case-driven segment. So that's where you need to know the specific ins and outs of, let's say, mortgage origination. And so there, the partners are better off to serve their own sort of expertise area. It's basically we sell directly to sort of teams inside enterprise and then we have the partner ecosystem to serve on a use case by use case basis that's how we think about it are these partners uh, globally distributed yes definitely basically have partners across all the all the continents it's really distributed right now and um, there's different categories of partners as well some of them might you know offer business process outsourcing services some of them are automation pure play vendors as we call them so they specifically focus on automation services and then there are you know the big force the, the accounting companies so they they will typically also deploy rpa with their customer base so it's really wide range of, of different kinds of partners and within that base there's different kinds of business models that they deploy everything from reselling into consulting into you know system integrator work into managed services is the Robocorp team similarly globally distributed? Oh, yeah, for sure. So we are right now, I think, in nine different countries, about 50 or so people at the moment adding headcount right now. But we, we are a fully remote company, and we, we've been like that from the beginning. So engineering typically is around Europe, and we do have a big base in Finland for engineering, but it's, it's also distributed product engineering design and then our partner operations are right now led from europe and and then the the broader go to market team is in the us so sales marketing customer success so i always warn founders about how hard pricing is there are a number of strategies to price i saw in the rpa market what is robocorp strategy and how long did it take you to get there did you get it right the first time and where are you today 
No, man. I mean, pricing is really difficult. It, it goes across everything, really. So when when I got started with Robocop, started kind of building the vision for the company. Now, we knew that we want to be the open source standard for RPA, for sure. We wanted to innovate around how do you build bots, how do you operate, manage them you know, at scale, deploy them at scale, all of that stuff, make it more robust and resilient and faster. All of the technical attributes that you want to have for a solution like this. But then the second big innovation there was around pricing itself and the business model. So RPA traditionally has been really complex in licensing. You can imagine these like large enterprise pricing schemes. Every item has their has their own price tag, you know, from starting from a developer license to a test license to an orchestrator to a bot license to an attended bot license and and you name it. So we wanted to make it really simple. We sort of went back to first principles and started thinking about okay, what is the the best proxy for for value in RPA? Traditional RPA will price it around bot licenses. So it, essentially, you have a bot license that allows you to run one bot at a time. If you want to run two bots at a time, you purchase another license and so forth. And if the bot is isn't doing anything, you're still paying for the license. So we thought that the better capture for value is going to be around consumption and namely the working time of the bot. So whenever your bot is working, you're producing value. And so that's the the proxy. We were the first one to to build a consumption-based pricing model. And we did it from the beginning and started building the whole platform with that in mind, that that we want to get rid of the, the concept of a bot license and go to consumption. And that still works people love it and they they like the sort of flexibility of it they don't need to know how many licenses they need to purchase in advance people will have peak demand loads you know at the end of the month or end of the year end of the quarter they will run reports that the bots will do and those can you know demand hundreds of of these bots working at the same time so our model really unconstrains them and allows them to think of the processes from the best engineering perspective rather than thinking from a licensing perspective that was like good good starting point but then comes all the details like <laughs> all, all the all the small details okay you're running a bot that needs to work 24/7 with a minute based price that becomes really expensive so we needed to add billing caps on a process by process level to to cap the the value at some point uh, you want to do parallel execution, these kind of things. There's different ways to to really make it work. And when we when you go into the enterprise, you you get into these um, conversations of you know we are, we are ramping up. We have all these you know plans for Robocop. We don't know how much we're actually going to consume. If they're coming from a legacy RPA platform, we are typically two to three times faster to execute. But they really cannot know in advance. So we need to make provisions for you know first year onboarding ramp up all that stuff so so pricing is really really difficult even though we we try to come up with the the most sim- simple and elegant pricing scheme possible and and it's it's still an ongoing process we are we are actually redoing some of the the pricing right now as as we speak from the day you started you had a certain value proposition in mind and what are the most important parts of that value proposition today that maybe differ from how you original from where you started? You know, we we thought out that that we'll have this more of a bottom up approach to RPA, where you can simply just download tools, explore them, build something, and then then get it into into use into production uh, as a self service motion. Uh, and, and and we thought that that would take us into a growth path. And so so we built the product in a way which allows you to do like a, 
full self-service. But then over time, we realized that in RPA, you typically have a different buyer than the technical user is, and, and the buyer is, is very non-technical. And so so we needed to start adding a lot of this sort of top-down aspect to the product itself and into the selling motion itself. You know, in the recent years, realized aspects of the value prop that we even didn't uh, fully understand ourselves, you know, things around being able to store the, the bot code in Git and GitLab, Git, GitHub and, and use version control. Now, the typical low-code solution doesn't do that for you. It's all a proprietary, you know, XML-based model that you operate with. So that really doesn't facilitate versioning. And so when we went in first time into like larger financial institutions, they told us that, hey, you know, we chose you for one reason, because we can actually audit the bots. We can, we can put code review processes around these bots and not for the reason of validating that the code is good quality, but actually validating that the digital worker doesn't go rogue, doesn't do things it wasn't intended to do. So the, the fact that we can do proper version control actually meant proper governance and controls and compliance for our customers. That was a, that was a new, new thing that we discovered some time ago. As we'd gone into the enterprise and got really good success stories there, things like reusable components across the bots. You can share code between the bots and build asset libraries that you can leverage in future bots that you build. You know, you don't need to re-implement all the, all the functionality again and again like you would do in a more traditional local platform. You know, these things have become more, more and more valuable over time to, to us and the customers. I guess as we tie this interview up, I wanted to get your thoughts on the open source industry, maybe more at large. As a successful founder, what do you think are some of the challenges that other entrepreneurs who want to use open source as part of their business model are facing today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Now, open source does have many different kinds of of business models around it. I think first of all, understanding what you can do around those, you know, whether it's an open core model whether it's a support model or cloud-enabled model. That's the choice that you have to make kind of early on as you start building. Sometimes you know, open source can be a one-way door. You, know, you put something out there in, in the public domain, you don't get it back. So realizing that and, and being mindful of what do you actually put in the, the open source side of your business and what's proprietary? What do you monetize? How do you do that? It's it's an important decision. And, you know, we've seen companies in the last decade or so go into open source and potentially give out too much of the value prop. I think Docker has been a good example of that. Now they've actually turned around and are doing great. But for a while, you know, insiders I've heard saying that we, we gave out too much. We, we didn't capture uh, the value. So so being mindful of, of what the customer wants to pay and, and, and trying to make it meaningful. Now, you don't want to build artificial gates. So so with us, for instance, we whenever somebody is using purely our open source stack in a large enterprise, we're super happy about it because that's still using us instead of the competition. So I encourage everyone to to use Robocop even even though you wouldn't be paying for us. That's all net positive to us. But but just being kind of mindful of where are the gates around paid, what the value is that you're delivering. It might be things that are non sort of not obvious for for technical people like myself, where it's around governance and, and compliance, which 
is a huge hassle for, for a larger enterprise customer. So understanding what the, the intended buyer is, is willing to pay for is, is, is one, one key part of it. And, you know, second is that is there really a open source flywheel that you can leverage? You know, is there a community building on top of your product, committing to directly to your product? Are you willing to take in those contributions as they come in? How do you control a community roadmap, for instance? Or is it more like building a component that, that then gets integrated into, into other open source? I mean, there's, there's so many different pathways there that you can explore and kind of plan for us as you go forward. Manti, thank you so much for sharing these thoughts with our audience. And I wish you guys the best of luck in the future. Thank you. It was great being here. Thanks to Robocorp for reaching out and the Glue team for helping me pull this episode together. Cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zabriski, and Lee Rosevier. If you're interested in open source, especially if you're based in Europe, you should check out the State of Open Source Conference in London, February 7th and 8th. I'll be there. I'm even recording a podcast live at the event. So until next time, this is Mike Schwartz. You're listening to Open Source Underdogs. Thanks for listening.